This is the FCB Radio Network, home of the best personalities and where real talk lives. Online at FCBradio.com. FCB. They freed us all from tyranny. Risked everything for liberty. And they thought so we would be America, land of the Hi, Patriots. Welcome back to the Growing Patriot Podcast, American History for Kids. I'm your host, Amelia Hamilton. After that tough winter in Morristown, the battle started up again in the spring of 1780. And I hope you're ready because we are going to go through that whole battle season today. You might remember how Charleston had been a major location at this point in the war. Both sides wanted it, and it kept going back and forth between them. Well, after a six-week siege, American Major General Benjamin Lincoln, who was in charge of the Charleston garrison, surrendered to the British. And losing Charleston was one of the worst losses the Patriots had had during the entire war. A group of almost 400 soldiers had been on its way to Charleston under the command of Abraham Buford, but they didn't make it in time to help the Patriots. So British General Cornwallis sent Lieutenant Colonel Tarleton to meet them and fight it out. So just two weeks after the British took Charleston, British and American forces met up again in South Carolina. This became known as the Battle of Waxhaws or Buford's Massacre. It was a really quick battle, but it was a big one. There weren't a lot of British wounded or killed, only five killed and 14 wounded, but the Americans lost 113 killed and 203 wounded. Colonel Buford managed to escape from the slaughter, but he reported what he saw on the battlefield to Patriot officials and the effect was electrifying. The Battle of Waxhaws became known as Buford's Massacre and Tarleton, who was already known as an aggressive commander, was thought to be a butcher. They thought he went way too far. Although some people debate whether those killings really happened. The British said that all wounded of both sides were treated fairly, which was the custom of the day. But now historians debate if that's true. However, in 1780, when this news came out, the effect was major. As the British advanced into North Carolina, men from all over the South took up arms in order to defeat the butchers of Waxhaw. So the Continental Army lost bad, but it might have helped them in the long run because it got more people to pick a side and get involved, and they were choosing against the British. The British had almost complete control of South Carolina and Georgia once they won Charleston. North Carolina, on the other hand, hadn't seen war for four years and the British decided to turn their attention up there. So British Commander Lord Charles Cornwallis brought 8,345 men. And two of those men, Lieutenant Colonel John Moore and Major Nicholas Welch, were actually native North Carolinians, so they were ready to take on the Patriots in their own home colony. They went around North Carolina trying to find more loyalists that would help with the battle. So once that group began gathering in Lincoln County at Ramser's Mill, and but when the Patriot General Griffith Rutherford found out about this, he sent words to locals like Colonel Francis Locke and Major Robert Wilson to gather a force to get rid of those loyalists. And on the night of the 19th of June, with 400 men who didn't have much equipment or training, he set out from camp on Mountain Creek for Ramser's Mill, which was about 15 miles away. Meanwhile, the Tories on that hill 
were about 1,300, although not all of them had weapons. When Locke got close, he met up with a local patriot named Adam Reap, who gave him information about the Loyalists. He'd been spying and knew how many there were, what the land was like, that kind of thing. So Locke decided to launch an attack against the Tories before they had time to suspect it was coming. The fighting went on for about two hours, and people didn't even know what side anybody was on. They might come across friends or family members on the battlefield and not know if that was their friend or their enemy. To try to make it a little easier, the Patriots stuck little white pieces of paper in their hats, and the British stuck little green twigs in theirs. Can you imagine in a battle trying to look at somebody's hat? So even though they outnumbered the Patriots by more than three to one, the Loyalists were beaten and ran away. At the end of the day, the battlefield had about 70 dead and 200 wounded, pretty equally divided between the two sides. But the Battle of Ramsar's Mill was a big problem for the British in North Carolina. It meant that Cornwallis did not have the help he needed when he got into that colony, and it set up the Battle of Kings Mountain, which we're going to get to in a minute. So while Cornwallis was stuck in the south without the number of troops that he wanted, about 5,000 French troops arrived in Rhode Island on July 11th to join the Patriots. They were led by a man named the Comte de Rochambeau. Now Admiral de Ternay's fleet was also there and they had about 6,000 sailors and marines for about 12,000 French troops. That's more troops landing than people who actually lived in the town where they landed. However, it was too late in the battle season to start a new campaign, as they called it, and a lot of men were sick when they first landed. So they spent the rest of that fall and winter in Rhode Island getting ready for the battles that would come in the spring. And while they were preparing, a lot was still going on in the southern colonies. The American side was still trying to recover from losing Charleston. They attacked an outpost at Hanging Rock, South Carolina, because it didn't have much defense, and they were hoping to get the British out of the south. They attacked on August 6th, and it's considered a victory for the Patriots, even though they ended up withdrawing and didn't quite take that fort. But while the American forces had more casualties, the victory at Hanging Rock made Patriots even more motivated to get the British out of the South. Then 10 days later, on August 16th, which is my birthday, by the way, the British and Americans met up in South Carolina again, this time in a place called Camden. Now usually, the most experienced groups of soldiers were placed on the right side of the commander. So American Major General Gates did just that, and he put these veterans from the Maryland and Delaware lines on his right. The problem is the British did the same thing, which meant that the least experienced Americans were up against the most experienced British, and that turned out to be a huge mistake. When the British came to the Americans with their bayonets, which you remember are like little swords on the ends of their guns, the Americans immediately turned and ran. That carried North Carolina militia into the center of Gates, and the Americans quickly collapsed. Gates' defeat cleared South Carolina of organized American resistance and opened the way for Cornwallis to invade North Carolina. Uh-oh. But who is ready for a major plot twist? It all starts on September 23, 1780, when a man named John Andre was arrested. He was a soldier and also in charge of the British spies, and that's important to remember. He was in charge of the people spying on the American patriots. 
When he was caught, six pieces of paper were found hidden in his sock, and those pieces of paper gave instructions on how the British could take over West Point Fort in New York. So here's the plot twist. Those instructions had been written by Benedict Arnold. You might remember us talking about him because he was a big deal in the American army. He was one of George Washington's generals. But it looked like he had been spying for the British. So George Washington went to West Point to talk to Benedict Arnold about this himself. When he got there, Arnold wasn't there to greet him, which was pretty weird. Well, it turns out someone had sent Benedict Arnold a note to tell him he'd been accused of horrible things. The person who sent the note thought they couldn't possibly be true, so he wanted to just warn Benedict Arnold what was happening. But when Benedict Arnold got the note, and he knew it certainly was true, he ran away before anyone could arrest him. Arnold went on to become a brigadier general in the British Army and got quite a bit of money for turning on the Americans. He led British forces in battles near where he was born and raised in Connecticut. In the winter of 1782, he and his wife Peggy moved to London. But he was well received by George III and some of the loyalist Tories, but a lot of what they call the Whigs, which was like the other political group. And most military people did not like him at all. They did not think that he had acted very well. In 1787, he moved to Canada to run a merchant business with his sons Richard and Henry, but he wasn't popular there either. So in 1791, he just went to, back to London permanently, and he died there in 1801. But this first part of Benedict Arnold's story takes us almost to October of 1780, so it's almost the end of the battle season. The Battle of King's Mountain was just a little bit later on October 7th, and was one of the few big battles of the Revolutionary War that was entirely between fellow countrymen, which means that it was fought entirely between American colonists. There were no British troops. Major Patrick Ferguson was the commander of the Loyalist force, and he was the only British person on the field. But the people doing the actual fighting were Loyalist militia elements. That just means everyday regular people, but they were for, on the British side. British General Cornwallis had sent Major Patrick Ferguson, who the troops called Bulldog, to North Carolina in early September of 1780, so about a month before the battle. Ferguson had two jobs. He had to get new people to fight for the Loyalists, and he had to protect Cornwallis as he moved through North Carolina. But Ferguson came upon a group called the Over Mountain Men. They lived in Carolina backcountry and the Appalachian Mountain Range, and from places that would later become states of Tennessee and Kentucky. But he underestimated those men. He just assumed that they would do what he said and issued a proclamation for them to, quote, desist from their opposition to British arms, or he would march over mountains, hang their leaders, and lay their country to waste with fire and sword. Those scare tactics did not work. So on October 7th, Ferguson and his men met on a rocky hilltop in western South Carolina called Kings Mountain. American troops led by Isaac Shelby and John Sevier defeated Major Patrick Ferguson and a third of General Cornwallis's whole army. Beating the Loyalists that bad was the first major setback in Britain's southern strategy, their plan to get the South on board. And that started a chain of events that would eventually end the whole war. That battle only took an hour. But the British effort to secure Loyalist support in the South was a failure, and Thomas Jefferson called that battle the turn of the tide of success. What a great way to end the battle season, right? 
The last thing I want to mention is that George Washington named a new commander in the South at the end of that year, Nathaniel Green. You'll want to remember his name because you'll be hearing about him again. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Remember to like, subscribe to, and tell a couple of friends about the podcast. You can find out more about Growing Patriots and our books at growingpatriots.com and check out our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Growing Patriots. See you next time. They freed us all from tyranny. We stand everything for liberty. And they fought so we would be America, land of the free. Distributed by FCB Radio Network.